0: Have you ever had a strange feeling about something that you couldn't explain?
1: I knew you were going to say that.
0: (laughs) A sense of deja vu or a dream that came true?
1: Didn't we already say that?
0: I'm your host, Leah. I'm
2: Phil. And I'm Steve. We have many strange stories to talk about today. Join us as we jump down the rabbit hole of premonitions.
0: If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant stew is gluten free, organic, made from all natural free range ingredients, and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity.
2: A few months ago, my wife and I, along with my sister and brother in law, were visiting family in the United Kingdom. For a couple of days, we were staying with a lovely couple named Adrian and Rosie Carr. Okay, see if you can follow how I'm related to these people. I'm not actually related, but they are my cousins. Sons, mother, and father-in-law. Okay, and my cousin's sons, mother, I just and father-in-law. And it made a weird yeah, circle. Yeah, it's not too far, not too many degrees of separation there. <laughs> anyway, they are a wonderful and gracious couple who invited us to stay in their home, even though they had never met us personally. Um, they have a beautiful home just outside of Newport, Wales, on what had been actually a Roman road, and the area around it is just stunningly beautiful. Cool. Um, we visited with the cars uh, for quite a bit and got to know them really well. We were only there, I think, we stayed two nights with them. But it was interesting. They shared an interesting story with us concerning Adrian's mother. Now, she died about 10 years ago. But for a few months before her death, she was showing definite signs of dementia, especially including one particular activity. Nearly every day, she would walk outside the house and yell up at the sky, Barack Obama, come on down and land your helicopter here. (laughs)
0: That's oddly specific. (laughs) Right.
2: This went on for several weeks, as nearly every day she was found outside the house pointing to a field nearby and yelling for the American president to land his helicopter there. It was a real head-scratcher to the family, as they couldn't figure out why she had this particular obsession. She'd never been particularly interested in politics, especially American politics, living in Wales. Well, as I mentioned earlier, she died about 10 years ago. The family property borders a beautiful resort and country club called the Celtic Manor. Well, about a year after her death, it was announced that the Celtic Manor was going to host the G7 Summit of NATO leaders. (laughs) And the significance of this happening didn't quite dawn on the family until on September 4th, 2014, they saw Barack Obama's helicopter fly over the house and land (laughs) in the field next to them.
0: That's (laughs) neat. (laughs) I wonder if he, they should have written him a letter and told him about it. I don't know.
2: They, they, was, they, they, they thought about that uh, a lot. You know, how did, how did this, how did her mother know this or since this coming a year ahead of time?
0: That's so weird. I've had, I've had a couple like things like that happen to me, but as a child, uh, once when I was around about nine years old, I think, I was staying the night with my grandmother. It was late and we were watching a bit of TV before going to bed when I just, all of a sudden I became really anxious I just felt like this doom or something uh free floating anxiety or whatever, and it must have really bothered me enough to say something to my grandmother because I knew she was going to laugh at me, yeah, and she did she laughed at me, and shes she was like there's you know there's nothing else for you to do, just go to bed, and so I went to bed, but I couldn't sleep i was I was worried, I just felt so anxious. Right. finally, I did drift off for a moment, and I had a nightmare. Hmm. But it wasn't exactly a nightmare. I just pictured my mom lying in a bed, in her bed, in her uh, room, with her hand all bandaged up and everybody standing around and everything. And it just, it worried me so bad I didn't get sleep the rest of the night.
2: Now, was your mom at the same house with you? No,
0: there? she wasn't. She worked night shift almost all I of see. our childhood. And um, come to find out the next day when uh, I was she was supposed to be home after school, she uh, I found out she was in the hospital having surgery. On her hand. That night, she had uh, she worked for a cookie factory that will remain unnamed because it had some serious safety violations, and she was working on a machine. Hmm. And somebody came by, noticed the machine was off, and turned it on. Oh! And her hand was sucked through. Anyway, she had to have major surgery on her hand. Wow! And a few days later, when she was discharged, she was in her room. I got home from school, and I walked in, and it was the exact. Same scene. Same scene
2: that you'd visualized.
0: Yeah. and And it's funny because I never found out, I never talked again to my grandmother about that. But I know (laughs) she had to. (laughs) It was really (laughs) weird. And I never had anything like that happen again. Like my mother had several medical emergencies after that. Right. And never a premonition or anything like that. But I do, even as an adult, get weird feelings about situations and people. And sometimes I never know if I'm right or wrong. But sometimes it does turn out to be. You know, right? Yeah. Or, you know, I
2: you think know. as parents, as our kids are teenagers yeah. and they're starting to drive and things like that, we we have those you know fears, and you wonder, okay, is this a premonition or is it uh, you right. know, just a kind of a natural fear of what's going you know going on? I've well, had that, that as well.
0: I'm a firm believer that you gotta, especially yeah. with kids, you gotta right. listen to your gut instinct.
2: <laughs> listen to your gut, right? Well, the idea of premonitions has fascinated folks for a long time, and today we're going to do a deep dive into this riveting topic. Of course, some of you may have already known that.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> According to a website called spiritualandpractice.com, I don't, I'm sorry, spiritualityandpractice.com, the word premonition is defined as coming from the Latin pray, which means before, and monere, which means warn, hence, literally, forewarning. It's a glimpse of the future, a feeling or a sense that something is about to happen. They don't involve information from prior experience, but rather, like the Obama story shared above, involve knowledge of something for no particular known reason. As the Latin name references, a premonition may warn of something unpleasant or dangerous, but they can also preclude something positive, like getting a promotion or even locating a parking spot. (laughs) (laughs) You just have a feeling there was one over there. They can be vague or vivid and specific. They can occur in dreams, but they can also uh, happen when the person is wide awake. Now, premonitions are not a new phenomenon. They've been around for a long time. In fact, uh, numerous people in the Bible managed to avoid disasters by heeding dreams or visions with forewarning messages. One of my favorites occurs in the 27th chapter of the book of Acts in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was being transported as a prisoner to Rome by Roman soldiers. The soldiers decided to catch a ride on an Egyptian ship. However, uh, upon boarding, Paul spoke up and said, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage uh, will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo in the ship, but also of lives. Well, the soldiers ignored him and uh, boarded the prisoners and themselves on the ship. At first, things went pretty well, but soon a severe storm struck and did not let up for two weeks. Wow. wow sailors Two waves. Th- yeah, yeah, the sailors threw all the cargo and even the tackle into the sea, but the storm still did not let up. Finally, the ship ran aground on the island of Malta, and Paul said, "You should have listened to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I told you so I told you so <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, in his autobiography, Cash, the great country singer Johnny Cash shared many private and personal details about his very interesting life, and one of them fits into our topic for today. It appears that one Sunday morning, Johnny Cash and his wife June Carter found themselves walking down 57th Street in New York City. They happened upon a church that they hadn't noticed before. The building didn't actually look like a church, and so they just kind of looked like an ordinary building. But on Sunday morning, uh, they heard the music playing and and saw the sign indicating that the service was about to begin and they felt compelled to join in. They walked into the crowded chapel and noticed that the only available seats were in a pew about a third of the way down the aisle. A couple with their 10-year-old son happened to be sitting in the pew. When the boy saw Johnny Cash coming to sit down next to him, he immediately began shouting to his parents, I told you so! I told you so! I told you so! The minister stopped the service and walked down the aisle to where Cash and Carter were sitting. Mr. Cash, he said, I'd like for you to meet David. For the past three months, he has been telling everyone here that one day Johnny Cash was going to come sit down next to him (laughs) in church and worship with him. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) After the service, uh, Cash and Carter visited with the boy's parents. They learned that David was actually a special needs child. They also learned that the couple was actually Jewish, but that David had become a Christian while listening to Johnny Cash's gospel records. Oh, wow. Cash wrote in his autobiography, quote, I don't know exactly what to make of this experience, but I sure had a lot of fun sitting there next to him and worshiping. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, that would—that well, be yeah. s- a strange thing for Cash to, or anybody to kind of, yeah, uh, just to think kinda... about that,
2: right?
1: This other person that you've never met, never uh, met. This, had known at some point you're going to come into the, where they're at and sit next to
0: them. They just so happen to be crazy. there
2: walking down. Oh, let's yeah. go in. Let's just, oh, let's go in. Yeah. And <laughs> it's compelled.
0: interesting that, you know, the premonitions come to like children or to to dementia patients, things mm-hmm. like that. I think it more easily comes Which to. Which is them. funny,
1: folks, because she pointed at me when she said <laughs> dementia patients. I'm
0: just saying it out loud. Well, our, our children, you know, one or the other. I don't know.
1: Take <laughs> your pick.
0: <laughs> if the straight jacket fits. A demented child. I'm sorry. Sorry. That was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a Intended?
2: That was funny. <laughs> well, let's move on now, shall okay, we? Okay,
0: yeah, moving on. Well, uh, as you guys may know, we record a little bit in advance, and so this is February. We're recording this in February. I think it's going to be released 2023. in May. Yeah, twenty twenty three. And but in recent news, uh, there's been a lot of reports about a train crash in Ohio. Right. Yep. The reports are referring to the catastrophic train derailment that occurred on February third of this year, twenty twenty three. Just before 9 p.m., 38 cars of a Norfolk Southern freight train carrying hazardous materials derailed in East Palestine. This resulted in a huge chemical spill polluting area, water sources, and killing off local wildlife. Authorities had to make the tough and really controversial decision to start a controlled fire to burn off some of the hazardous materials, specifically vinyl chloride, Mm -hmm. in order Mm -hmm. to prevent a more catastrophic explosion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This released a huge cloud of toxic black smoke into the atmosphere. Residents within a two-mile radius of the accident, roughly half the town's 4,800 residents, were evacuated, and the environmental damage done to the area... Is still being evaluated. Pretty
2: significant, it seems. Uh,
0: there's a picture. We'll have a picture of this on our on our uh, social media. But also, there's a picture that had been going around, and I verified that it is a true picture of someone. Someone in an airplane took a picture down on the clouds, and there's just hmm. you know all these this just whole bank of white clouds with a huge black circle. Wow! And it's it's right over East Palestine.
1: Hmm. That's crazy.
0: Anyway, several of the residents say that they had a strange sense of deja vu when they had to evacuate. You see, a similar disaster happened in the early 1980s in Bhopal, India that killed nearly 4,000 people. But why would that deadly incident be in the minds of Ohio evacuees? Well, the incident in India inspired author Don DeLillo, I think that's how you pronounce his name, to write the novel White Noise which was published in 1985. The story follows a family affected by the pollution of an industrial accident. The book in turn inspired a movie by the same name to be produced. The odd thing about it is that it was filmed just a couple years ago in Ohio, About twenty miles from where the train derailment happened. Oh wow.
2: Right at the same spot.
0: And listen, several of the people who were evacuated from the recent toxic accident were cast as extras in the movie where they portrayed people reacting to and fleeing from nearly the same disaster. Wow.
2: Wow. Art imitates life. The movie
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, The movie hit theaters in August of twenty twenty two, just six months before the train derailment. Hmm. The book and film follow the fictional Gladney family, a couple and their four kids remember that right as they flee an airborne toxic event and then return home and try to resume their normal lives east palestine residents ben ratner and his family were cast as extras in the movie one scene has ratner in a traffic jam sitting in a line of cars trying to evacuate after a freight train collided with a tanker truck triggering an explosion that fills the air with dangerous toxins according to cnn.com ratner and his family his wife Lindsay and their four kids, four kids, mm-hmm, are living the fiction they helped bring to the screen. <laughs> wow! They were ordered to evacuate their home after the February train derailment, and they were they were able to go back and get their dog, but they had to leave their pet wow. turtle. Hopefully, mm. the turtle's okay. Oh, right. The first half of the move oh, quote. This is a quote. Uh, the first half of the movie is all all almost exactly what's going on here. Ratner told CNN. I actually made a meme where I superimposed my face on the movie poster and sent it to my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Scholars scholars who study DeLillo's work say that they are not surprised by the collision of life and art. His work is often described as prescient, said an an English professor at Maryville University in St. Louis quote the terrible spill now is of course a coincidence but it plays in our mind like life imitating art which is imitating life and on and on
2: yeah goes back and forth and, and i got
0: i got my information from wikipedia and cnn.com
2: wow that's a yeah it's a horrible situation but yeah, it's, it, it's, it really is you're 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 in real life you're doing the same thing you did in a movie 2 years ago right know?
0: and it's still playing out it's yeah. still happening as of right. this recording um, another train disaster there was the case of the British Rail workhorse numbered 47299, based out of Emmingham. On December 9th, of 1983, the engine was hauling an oil train when it collided at low speed into the side of a local passenger train. The first carriage of the passenger train was derailed and turned over onto its side, with one passenger being killed instantly. The odd thing about this train was that it had been renumbered. Its original number had been 47216 it changed to its final number of 47299. And the reason why will surprise you.
2: Okay. I'm ready to be surprised.
0: <laughs> Normally new numbers are only allocated when a machine has major modifications, requiring the computer to identify it under different a different classification. Right. Mm-hmm. In the case of forty two forty seven two sixteen, there was no physical change, only a psychic element. Two years earlier in 1981, the British uh, Rail received a call from a woman claiming to be a clairvoyant. She told them she had a recurring vision of a fatal train crash involving a big blue engine hauling oil tankers. The engine in her vision was numbered 47216. So officials at British Rail were likely not impressed with the random call and no doubt would normally have ignored it and continued business as usual, except that one of the officials mentioned the woman's name to someone who had heard about her. Apparently, this particular clairvoyant, or what we would call a psychic, um, was discovered to have been taken seriously by police when she helped them on at at least one case. case. Uh Mm -hmm. This caused British Rail to take the phone call into serious consideration and changes were made. Not the drastic measure to retire the useful engine, but the relatively simple change to just renumber it in the hopes of changing its predicted fate. It didn't work. they
2: they knew the number was really there. I mean, mean, if they
1: were only thinking the number, why not repaint it? Yeah, Because I'm assuming it was still blue when it hit. I don't know.
0: They changed the number. I don't know. Anyway, I got my information from railexpress.co.uk. New Railway Modelers and Wikipedia. Wow.
2: Wow. Well well um staying in the UK, um there's an article in theguardian.com titled The Vision Collector. It detailed the work of the twentieth century British psychologist John Barker. Barker was, by all other means, an ordinary psychologist who worked at a small town hospital. He had been trained at Cambridge and also at St. George's Medical School in London. But Barker also had a keen interest in psychic research, and for some years he had been interested in the problem of precognition, and people who seemed to know what was going to happen to them before it actually did. Now, uh, if you're a big fan like I am of the popular Netflix series, The Crown, uh, you may well remember the episode which detailed the tragic disaster at Aberfan in Wales, If you're not familiar with it, on the morning of October 21st, 1966, an avalanche of coal waste Mm -hmm. products careened down a steep hillside and crashed into the town's schools soon after attendance had been taken. The junior school was completely destroyed. 144 people were killed in the disaster. 116 of them were children, Mm -hmm. mostly between the ages of 7 and 10. John Barker arrived on the scene as rescuers were still digging through the rubble. The devastation reminded Barker of the Blitz when he had been a teenager growing up in South London during World War II, but the loss of life in Aberfan was worse for being so concentrated and the dead so young. Mm -hmm. Quote, parents who had lost their children were standing in the street looking stunned and hopeless, and many were still weeping. There was hardly anybody I encountered who had not lost someone. One parent who Barker spoke with showed him an incredible drawing that her eight-year-old son had made the night before the disaster. It showed several people digging through a pile of rubble. Over the top of the rubble, the child had written, The End.
0: Oh, wow. That's disconcerting.
2: Right. Another student at the school named Errol Mai Jones had been acting strangely all week. Two days before, she had had a terrible dream. The next morning, she told her mother that in her dream she had gone to her school, but couldn't find it because something black was covering it. She also mentioned to her mother that she wasn't afraid to die because that way she could be with Peter and June, two young classmates who had died the previous year. Sadly, Errol was one of those killed in the tragedy. Barker began inquiring whether others had experienced any forewarnings before the accident, even placing an advertisement in the local newspaper. Soon, several replies came in. A lady named Constance Miles had a vision the night before the disaster in which she saw an old school, a Welsh coal mine, and an avalanche of coal rushing down the mountain. She told this to six of her friends, who later confirmed her story. Another man had the strong feeling that a national disaster would occur on that Friday. He'd been telling his workmates the whole week. That Friday morning when he arrived, he told his secretary, this is the day.
0: Wow, that's, that, he's such a downer. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but... That's amazing. Hey, something
1: bad's going to happen, yeah. and it's going right. to be this Friday. Today's Barker today.
2: wow. found no less than 22 respondents who had premonitions about the disaster and had shared them with other people beforehand. Several more claimed to have had premonitions about the disaster but could not verify their experience. The result of this study convinced Barker that precognition is not unusual among humans. He even speculated that it may be as common as left-handedness. Before Christmas that same year, Barker approached the editor of a British publication called The Evening Standard with an idea. How about for the next year, we invite people to mail us letters detailing any premonitions that they might have? Then we can compare them with actual events and find out if any of the premonitions come true. The editor thought it was a good idea, and so a notice was placed in the paper. Oh, no. The Premonition Bureau (laughs) was formed.
1: I have a premonition that this is going to end up (laughs) with a lot of mail.
2: Well, that's true. It said over the coming months, the Bureau received hundreds of premonitions, most of which turned out to be dead ends. However, two people had real staying power, a piano teacher named Kathleen and a switchboard operator named Alan. Over the course of 1967, these two accurately predicted a plane crash, including almost the exact number of people killed, an oil spill, the death of a Russian cosmonaut on his reentry, a train crash in which 49 people died, and the following year, The Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy.
0: Wow. Hmm. Wow.
2: So that was from TheGuardian.com. Uh,
0: and now for something completely off-topic and off-kilter, brace yourself for the oddity du jour. All
2: right, for our oddity today, let's talk about etiquette. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) From interestingfacts.com, we find an article that explains those strange rules of etiquette that your mother tried to teach you. When you ask her why, she probably said, because I told you so. That's right. And if your mother was like mine, you didn't dare question any further. But in the back of your mind, you probably still wondered why. So let's investigate a few.
1: So then you test it and then realize, oh, she's right. (laughs) That's why you did
0: it. Right. Yeah.
2: Now, if you're at a nice dinner and someone asks you to pass the salt, do you pass the pepper too? Those not in the know might think that just passing the salt is fine, but those seasoned in dining etiquette... Yeah, get that little joke on there.
0: Yeah, pun Uh, intended. We heard it.
2: it. Know that you must pass both salt and pepper together. Think of salt and pepper as spouses or siblings. They should always stay together. Remember this little rhyme. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, no. He's, he tries to say this at lost it. <laughs>
2: Mr. Salt and Mrs. Pepper always travel around the table together. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but it is. <laughs> the reason is that passing them both together minimizes the disruption of table conversation. Even if the person receiving the salt and pepper only needs the salt, the chances are that one of their dining neighbors might need both. Also, it's more appropriate to place the shakers on the table in front of the person who asks rather than in their hand. This is due to an old belief that two people who hold both the salt together will eventually get into an argument. Uh, I've that's never heard that that's
0: inter- there's a lot of legend and lore surrounding salt. <laughs> Don't touch my salt. Yeah. <laughs> I had never heard that the etiquette. <laughs> salt it, and pepper together.
1: Then the question, then comes the joke: is he's, he's assaulted me? Probably oh yeah. my thank goodness! You. Thank you're you're welcome. welcome. Thank you you're for that, that. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Tip your
2: now. What about those elbows on the table? Actually, this one goes back to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which states, "quote." Be ashamed of breaking an oath or a covenant and of stretching your elbow at dinner. Didn't realize that was in the Bible, did you?
0: No, I didn't.
2: Table <laughs> manners were originally introduced to prevent mealtime fights with a knife and fork <laughs> establishing each eater's boundary lines. I today, can the, imagine.
1: <laughs>
2: today the elbow No I'm roll. not sharing. <laughs> This is from straight from interestingfacts.com. They wouldn't lie about a thing like this. But anyway, today the elbow rule stops people from slouching or accidentally, learning, leaning, oops, or accidentally leaning their arms into food dishes. Whoops. It also prevents people from blocking conversations among one's neighbors because you've got your elbow leaned way out there, you see. Uh, perhaps you have been at an event where a toast is offered to one of the guests. Did you know that if the toast is being offered to you, that it's impolite for you to drink? would be akin to applauding your own self.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So is that bad? You can like your own post? Yeah, something like that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Instead, practice the role of a grateful recipient by just saying thank you. Also, clinking your glasses during the toast is actually not good adequate because knocking drinks with a table full of people can require awkward stretching, uh, causing spills, or even broken glassware. A more dignified solution, just hold those glasses aloft.
0: I, I agree toast. with that, yeah. and but I'm not going to do that. I'm going <laughs> to clink them every chance I get. Give it the clink.
2: <laughs> now, did you know that some common responses to thank you can actually be considered rude? If you reply to thank you with no problem or don't mention it or it was nothing, then you're kind of hitting that your good deed was almost a hindrance or an inconvenience. Of course, texting has muddied the waters here a bit, but at least when speaking in person, adequate authorities encourage people to try replies such as, you're welcome, my pleasure, and of course. You can see the
1: subtle difference there, can't you?
0: Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wanting
1: wanting to know the etiquette police. I want to see the badge.
0: Yeah, I've never heard of that. I mean, like in Spanish, you say Mm donada, which means it's nothing. So it's the same thing as no problem. Anyway. I don't you,
2: know. You have to talk to the Spanish Emily Post for that. Yeah, I guess so. You know. Anyway, uh, and finally, now this is a new rule that comes to us from the Netherlands, a country where about a fourth of the population rides bicycles. Oh, it's it's amazing when you go to Amsterdam, uh, you hear that they they ride bicycles. but yeah, there are more bicycles by far than cars. It seems that you know to me when I was there. In fact, uh, we heard a humorous story as we took a canal tour. He said, "You have uh, you have your good bike and then your." your ordinary bike and uh, you keep your good bike locked up in inside and your ordinary bike outside. And he said, it's kind of a tradition. If a couple breaks up, well, the offended party will grab the ordinary bike and throw it in a canal. So
0: (laughs) I think (laughs) we had a, we had a story about people pulling bikes out of canals. Right. Yeah. Evidently there was a a lot of them in there. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, anyway, if you drive a car in this country, you are encouraged to use the Dutch reach. This means that you open your car door with your opposite hand, not the not the hand that's nearest to the door. Now, the reason for this, and it makes sense, is that reaching a, across with your opposite hand turns your head and your body slightly to be better and able to see if a bicycle is approaching. You know, you don't want to open the door. And uh, slam it right into a bicyclist that's coming your way. That would be very gauche indeed. <laughs> so we want to keep these adequate rules in mind.
0: I already feel more polite.
1: Nope.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. Somewhere, Phil's wife is rolling her eyes. I can tell already.
0: Oh, it's already happened at least
1: three times during this recording.
0: Right. <laughs> and we're back. Yay! Dun dun dun.
2: We all know about the Titanic, Mm -hmm. how on April 14th, 1912, the Great Ocean Liner, which had been tabbed unsinkable on its maiden voyage, struck an iceberg and sank within three hours, taking some 1,500 people to a watery grave. Were there premonitions about this disaster? Undoubtedly so. Numerous people reported not buying tickets because of a, quote, funny feeling they had. Right, According to historycollection.com, the Cardeza family, C-A-R-D-E-Z-A, had bought the most expensive suite on the ship, but their maid, Annie Ward, refused to board after having a premonition that tragedy would strike. Some people cited the brashness of the ship's captain, Edward John Smith, who supposedly stated, even God himself cannot sink this ship. And they kind of thought that was tempting providence, so <laughs> yeah, some people I think stayed so. away from that.
1: All right, I'm out. <laughs>
2: Perhaps the most interesting possible premonition, though, came from the pen of author Morgan Robertson. According to Wikipedia, Robertson was born in 1861 in Lake Oswego, New York. His father was a ship's captain on the Great Lakes. Robertson began working as a cabin boy when he was 15, and he spent the next 23 years working as a merchant marine, eventually rising to the rank of first mate. In the 1890s, Robertson began making some extra money writing short stories and selling them to newspapers, magazines, and other publications. In 1898, he published a short novel called Futility. Now, get these details here. This story featured an enormous British passenger liner called the Titan.
0: Okay, wow. Which,
2: which was the largest vessel of its time, just like the Titanic. The Titan was just 25 meters shorter than the Titanic and was also considered to be unseekable. Both ships carried far too few lifeboats to accommodate the some 2,000 passengers. Just like the Titanic, the Titan was capable of traveling over 20 knots per hour. On an April voyage across the North Atlantic, the Titan hit an iceberg and sinks, resulting in almost uh, entirely everyone on board dying. Wow. So, this story was published 14 years before the actual sinking of the Titanic, but it has so many similarities that most people assume that Robertson must have had a strong premonition about the disaster. But Robertson was not one of these people who believes this. He was still alive in 1912, and he was aware that many people were discussing the uncanny similarities between his story and the disaster. However, Robertson claimed that this was not the result of any premonition. Brother Robertson pointed out that he was an experienced sailor. He knew that the tendency was for ocean liners to get larger and larger. He also knew that icebergs would pose a serious threat to ships traveling at high speeds. He threw in the lack of lifeboats just for some dramatic tension. Still, you must admit that these similarities are quite
0: remarkable. They really are. They really are. And it's funny because when uh, researching for this, I came a lot of, across a lot of quote-unquote premonitions right. from novels and books, a lot of them science fiction. We've talked about it before, mm-hmm. how... A lot of the times when you know you got the imagination of authors and writers, sure. and they let it let it flow, and, right. and, and science do, catches up to it, right?
1: And they yeah. do their research on the science itself to right. a, to a point that they can understand, so they can write about it. And right. then they take it their imagination to that next level, and, and knowing imagining the
0: disaster. And so he did the same thing, just knowing yeah. human fallacy right. and and pride. I think and pride. <laughs> um,
2: well, speaking of stories that seemingly predict future events, consider the novel of Edgar Allan Poe, titled The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, P-Y-M, of Nantucket.
0: Oh, I know about this one.
2: Which was published in 1838. In this story, the four-man crew of a ship called the Grampus found themselves shipwrecked on a deserted island. They found a tortoise and ate it, but they were still hungry. As Pope... Poe frequently leans toward the macabre. You can guess where this was going. (laughs) The crew decided to draw straws. Whoever drew the short straw would be killed and eaten by the other three. Richard Parker, now remember that name. Richard Parker, a former mutineer, uh, draws the short straw and is brutally murdered. His feet, hands, and head are tossed into the sea. Two of the remaining members of the crew manage to survive after their act of cannibalism and are eventually rescued. Poe didn't particularly like this story. In fact, he referred to it as somewhat silly, though it did appear to have influenced Jules Verne and Herman Melville, I'm sorry, Herman Melville, who used elements from the story in their own writings. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Now let's fast forward 46 years to 1884. A small ship called the Minionette with a crew of four sailed from London heading towards Sydney, Australia. Somewhere along the way, the ship sprang a bad leak and sank. The four crew members managed to get on a lifeboat. Soon they ran out of food and water. They managed to capture a tortoise and eat it, but then they were still hungry. One of the crew members, Richard Parker, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) became so thirsty that he took a big swallow of ocean water, which made him very sick. The other three members decided not to wait until he died, otherwise his blood might be bad, so they killed the poor Richard and survived by eating him. When they were rescued and taken back to England, the three surviving members of the crew were given life prison sentences, but then they had a retrial and the sentence was shortened to six months. So was was Poe's writing based on some kind of premonition? We'll never know, as Poe died in 1849, some 35 years before the incident of the Marguerite. Still, the coincidence is quite alarming.
0: You know, I have to tell you that when I was putting our separate researches together, because uh, Steve, you, res- you right. do your own research, I do my own, and then we, I combine it together. I had a strong sense of deja vu. <laughs> uh, I really thought we'd covered this story. Like I remember researching and writing about the trials of those guys, hmm. but trials, I might, I could not find any reference. And you know, I can you can do a search within our Google Drive right, of right. all of our episodes. And I can come up with anything. So you, you probably
2: came up, or you came across the information, but we didn't. Yeah, maybe.
0: Cover. Anyway, but if any of our listeners out there remember us yeah, talking about it, let us before. know. Send me a message. <laughs> um. So okay, so this is not this story is about an author. Um, I think if you ask people to name a comet, what they most people would name
2: Haley's Haley's
0: comet. There yeah. you go. Even though several comets have been seen in our skies since Halley's last flyby in 1986, arguably the most famous comet, it was dis- Halley's comet was discovered by English astronomer Edmund Halley as he examined reports of a comet approaching Earth in 1531, 1607, and 1682. He found out or he concluded, that these three comets were actually the same comet returning over and over again every uh-huh. 75 years. Halley's calculations showed that at least some comets orbit the sun, and their approach to the Earth can be uh, scientifically predicted. Halley, unfortunately, didn't live long enough to see that his prediction of the comet's return in 1758 was correct. Uh, The comet, though, has inspired people throughout the ages. According to the Britannica Encyclopedia, it's thought that the 1301 appearance of the comet would have inspired Italian painters Painter Giotto's rendering of the Star of Bethlehem in his painting, The Adoration of the Magi. Cool. Haley's most famous appearance occurred shortly before the 1066 invasion of England by William the Conqueror. Oh, right. It's said that William believed the comet heralded his success. In any case, the comet was put on uh, the beautiful, I think that's Bayou, Bayou tapestry, which chronicles the invasion. And this was done in William's honor. In 1600, just 105 years before Edmunds, Edmund Haley's observation of the comet, Shakespeare wrote in his play Julius Caesar. Uh, in it, he wrote of comets as heralds, saying, When beggars die, there are no comets seen. The heavens themselves blaze forth the death of princes. Oh, okay. So well, it's no surprise that those who watch the sky would see comets, something entirely different from the usual com- constellations moving across the sky, and they would move Separately and differently. So they're reading um,
2: more into the yeah read, of the comet right? than maybe because yes, it's because it's, it's, yeah. it's a
0: stranger in the sky they would yeah. read into it and uh, consider it to be a herald of either foretelling something or right. heralding the end of something like like a death or something like that
1: yeah.
0: Um, but it's impossible to prove that any of those predictions related? were due yeah were yeah. related yeah. to the comet except. Except Uh-oh. Uh-oh. author Samuel Clements, better known as Mark Twain. Mark, Twain, Mark Twain, took note of the famous comet most likely because he was born in 1835 when Halley's Comet was close and visible in the skies. In 1909, he was quoted as predicting his own death by saying, quote, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. It's coming again next year and I expect to go out with it.
1: <laughs> it will be
0: the greatest disappointment of my life if I don't go out with Halley's Comet. The Almighty has said, no doubt. Now, here are these two unaccountable freaks. (laughs) 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 They came in together. They must go out together. Oh, that's funny. In 1910, the year after this prediction, Halley's Comet came around once again as expected. It was at its brightest on April 20th. Samuel Samuel Clemens died of a heart attack the very next day on April 21st. Wow. Yeah. So I think he felt obligated. Not what he wanted, yeah. So I got my information from space.com, today i found and wikipedia. Okay. Now this next story isn't quite so dark. It refers to one of the more colorful times of American history. Approximately 300,000 people came from across the United States and around the world flocking to California during the California Gold Rush. Gold
2: Rush, the 49ers.
0: That's right. It all started on January 24th, 1848 when James W. Marshall arrived to make his customary inspection of a sawmill he was building for John Sutter at, at Sutter's Fort. Yeah. The night before, Marshall had diverted water through the newly constructed mill. In the early morning sun, Marshall saw shining flux of metal in the water. As Marshall later recalled of his historic discovery, quote, It made my heart thump, for I was certain it was gold. Oh, wow. Just days after Marshall's discovery at Sutter's Mill, I don't know if you knew this, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, ending the Mexican American War and putting California squarely in the hands of the United States. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, we right got there. it just in time. Just right in that time, yeah. yeah. This was a remarkable twist of fate with important ramifications for an America eager for westward expansion. Yep. But did you know that Marshall was not the first to discover gold in California? Just six years earlier, in 1842, a premonition in the form of a dream led to the first discovery when mineralist Francisco Lopez was a bit sleepy and decided to take a siesta beneath the shade of an expansive oak tree. While asleep, he had this dream of, like, floating gently down a river of gold. Oh, wow. Um. When he woke up, he was really hungry, so he looked around for some wild onions to, to snack on, as you do. Why not? Mm-hmm. And uh, nice. when he pulled them up, he noticed some gold flecks, or some people say nuggets, yeah. uh, intermingled among the, the roots, roots of the, the onions. Wow. Um, so this prophetic find became the first documented discovery of gold in California. The tree became known as the oak of the golden dream, is now an official California historic landmark that you can visit. Its gnarled trunk can be visited in the Placerita County natural area. The article in Atlas Obscura invites you to quote come sleepy and you may just walk away rich. <laughs> <That's pretty laughs> nice. So I got my information, of course, from Atlas Obscura and scvhistory.com.
2: Nice. Well, here's another another really interesting story. In fact, I think kind of uh, we touched on it briefly earlier, Phil. Mm-hmm. Um, a fellow named Alfred Naylor. He's a Wall Street executive. On February 26, 1993, he was on his way to work at the World Trade Center when he had a very strong urge to return to his home. Not being able to ignore this feeling, he thought maybe something was wrong at his house, so he got off his train at Grand Central Grand Central Station and caught the next train going in the reverse direction. When he reached home, it didn't appear that anything was wrong, so he turned on the local TV news. Shortly after noon, there was an interruption of the regular news to bring an update about a bombing at the World Trade Center. Terrorists had parked a powerful car bomb near one of the supporting pillars of the tower. Six people were killed, and more than a thousand were injured. Terrorists were hoping to topple Tower 1 into Tower 2, but their blast did not substantially damage the tower. Alfred Naylor was happy that he listened to that strong urge. A little over eight years later, mm. yeah. Alfred was again about to leave his house when he felt the same urge that he needed to stay home. You guessed it, this was September 11, 2001, the day that terrorists crashed airplanes into the World Trade Center. The loss of life totaled 2,996, with several thousand more injured. And once again, Alfred Naylor was not one of them. To this day, he is grateful that he received the premonitions, but also feels guilty that he was unable to help others. Now, to be fair, had he told people about his premonition, would they have believed him enough to go home? Well, maybe not then, but I bet they would now. Yeah, yeah I After would. A few I times, would for sure. Now, I
0: get that feeling as I go to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, my, I think I've mentioned this before, my brother-in-law was, during Vietnam, uh, was in the Army and was a point man of his platoon. On two different occasions, his bootlace came untied and he reached over to tie it and the next man stepped past him and stepped on a mine. But he said after that, every time he stopped, everybody stopped behind him. nobody passed him <laughs> anymore. I bet. Yeah. Well, now let's talk about President Abraham Lincoln. Yes. One day, President Abraham Lincoln was walking through the White House when he passed by a mirror. In the mirror, he saw his reflection, but he also saw a shadow of his reflection. He wrote to his wife that he thought this meant that he would survive his first term in office, but not the second. Lincoln suffered from frequent headaches and body aches. Some modern physicians believe that Lincoln suffered from Marfan's syndrome, which particularly affects very tall people. Of course, being president during the Civil War also took a huge toll on his health, so we may have had in mind that he would die of some illness. This, however, may not have been the only premonition Lincoln had about his death. Of course, we now know that Lincoln was assassinated on April 14, 1865, while watching a play at Ford's Theater in Washington. Right. His assassination was part of a plot concocted by John Wilkes Booth, who was attempting to restore the Confederacy. His accomplices were supposed to also kill Vice President Andrew Johnson and Secretary of State William Seward. Seward was attacked and stabbed in his home, but he did not die. Johnson's assailant got cold feet, and he didn't follow through with the plan. According to his friend and bodyguard, uh, Ward Hill Lamon. Lincoln told him a few days before the assassination that he'd had a dream in which he walked into the East Room of the White House and found a body in a casket being guarded by soldiers and attended by mourners. He asked one of the soldiers who was dead, quote, the president, he was killed by an assassin, came the reply. Some have disputed this story as lamon did not write about it publicly for some 20 years. Also, if he was the bodyguard and he knew this, then why didn't he do more to protect Lincoln? But still, it is the story that he claimed uh, that Lincoln told him.
0: Right. But what would he do? I mean, just. Yeah. Be more aware or what? I mean.
2: Yeah. Well, the the box was not well guarded. Where no. was, well, that's true. Where he was assassinated, you know.
0: Well, one more instance of a disaster foretold is the story of David Booth. Booth was an office manager of a car rental agency at Cincinnati Airport in 1979 when he started having nightmares. Actually, David only had one nightmare about a horrific airplane crash. Oof. But everyone has, you know, a nightmare every yeah. once in a while. It's no big deal. But uh, this nightmare that David had came to him over and over and over again. I think ten nights in a row, row. Yeah. And it affected him so profoundly that that he felt like he had to do something. And and the dream was about an specifically an American Airlines plane that shortly after takeoff has one of its engines fall off. Oh wow! Uh, the plane then flips over. And narrowly misses a low building and crashes to the ground, killing everyone on board. And he just, David just seemed to, he couldn't escape it. And he he felt like this many times it was prophecy. It wasn't just a dream. It was prophecy. And he felt like he had to do something. So that's when David Booth called the Federal Aviation Administration. He was directed to Jack Barker, which was interesting because you had a story about yeah. John Barker. Um, right. um, but he was directed to Jack Barker, the public affairs officer of the FAA. Jack Barker says that to him, David sounded perfectly rational, that he was he was upset about the dream. But other than that, he was calm and explained the string of events that played every night in his nightmare. Mm. David was relieved that Jack took him seriously, but the relief was short-lived. In spite of the horrifyingly real details of the dream, there was no well, there was no way to tell which flight it was. Right, right. Um, Jack Barker explains, "Quote: There was no city, no flight number, nothing relating directly to the accident, other than the description of what happened." Mm. So there's nothing else that David could do. He continued to have the nightmare many times over, and on May 25th, 1979, David became desperate. He called again and spoke to Jack Barker at the FFA, or I'm sorry, the FAA. F-A- FAA, yeah. Uh, but there still wasn't anything anyone could do short of grounding all of the planes, which they weren't going to do. Yeah. Then just a few hours after that second call, hmm. David's nightmare became a tragedy. Hmm. At Chicago's O'Hare Inter- International Airport, American Flight, uh, American oh, Airlines oh. Flight 191 lost an engine right after takeoff. It was just as David had dreamed. There were 273 people killed with no survivors. Did it flip over? Yes. Yes. I'm getting goosebumps saying this.
2: I remember it. It was actually photographed just before it crashed, and Mm. the photographs came out in the paper.
0: Yeah, and I I saw the photograph. Maybe I'll put it up on social media, but Jack Barker says that David's premonition about the crash is the only one ever recorded by the FAA. He's quoted as saying, I've been involved in a lot of strange incidents, accidents, hijackings, et cetera. This thing with the David Booth is the strangest of anything I've ever handled. The tragedy would haunt David for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> for sure.
2: He did all he could, but it still didn't he did. stop it. He you did. He
0: did. I got my information from Wikipedia and from a YouTube video from Season 3, e or Episode 7 of Weird or What, starring William Shatner. So mm. it's, it's over-the-top crazy. But uh, <laughs> the video included an interview with uh, Jack Barker. Oh, wow. Interesting. Wow.
2: Well, these have been some great stories.
0: Yeah. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the Trivia Challenge.
2: All right, so now it's time for that Trivia Challenge. And, of course, here's how it works. Like and follow our Facebook page, at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the Trivia Challenge question on the comments of that post. The first individual to do all that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. Our trivia challenge is also open to school kids. If you are a teacher and your class listens to Remnant Stew, we challenge them to answer the trivia challenge. Send us the answer through email at staycurious@remnantstew.com. If your class is the first to answer, we'll send a care package to the whole class. What a deal.
0: Yeah, maybe we'll put this rubber <laughs> chicken in there. Ooh, the the ooh. class will love that, right?
2: You mean this one? I wouldn't yeah. do that
0: to a teacher. Okay, anyway, the question is this man, famous for being a seer and for his many predictions, also published a cookbook featuring recipes for things like toothpaste, cosmetics, various dishes, as well as a reportedly powerful love potion. Who is this man? Oh,
2: I think somebody's going to get this one.
0: <laughs>
1: Hey, thanks for spending some time with us. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Remnants Two Podcast. You can also send us an email to say hi or suggest a topic for a future episode at staycurious at remnantstew.com. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Remnant Stew is a part of Rook and Raven Ventures and is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode along with commentary by our audio producers, Philip Sinkfeld. Special thanks to the rest of our team, Brandy Nichols, Judy Meeker, and Harbin Gold.
2: Now, before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head on over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, your family, and oops, I forgot to fill in somebody else there. (laughs) I should have known that was coming. (laughs) Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and always stay curious.